Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. I think we're at an amazing time right now. We're at a time where people across the planet are waking up. I think we're at the greatest revolution in history, perhaps, a, a consciousness revolution where I see that people are understanding that human beings have to have a new relationship with each other. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hi and hello, Liberty lovers, Liberty haters. Whatever emotion you're coming at the show with, I'm just glad you're here to give it a listen because this is the show where we roar about the ideas of liberty and we do it three days per week with three different shows with three different formats starting every single Monday here with the OG, the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast where I bring you fun roundtable discussions as well as interviews with interesting guests like the one you're going to hear today. Of course, every Wednesday, my man Brian McWilliams gives you your weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty with Electric Liberty Land and John Odermatt wraps it all up Every Friday with his look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. And you're not going to want to miss a thing on today's show. And just to make sure you don't, I put together a nice little show notes page for you, which you can conveniently find at lionsofliberty.com slash 329. This being the 329th episode of this program. Without further ado, let's get to today's guest. <laughs> All right, with me now is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, first published in 2004, as well as the more recently updated new Confessions of an Economic Hitman, released in 2016. He's a super fascinating guy. He's been all over the world. I am so pleased to welcome Mr. John Perkins. John, are you ready to roar? Meow. Yes. <laughs> we <laughs> will take that. Thank you. That is an acceptable answer. All right. Because <laughs> everybody's got a different style. But I, I would say that, you know, after reading your book, New Confessions of an Economic Hitman, like I told you before, I just, just finished this up last week. And uh, it, that, that's really what comes across to me in your work is that you're not really meowing. You are you are roaring loudly in, in many ways about, you know, not just your journey through your career um, as an economic hitman. And, and we'll get a little bit more into exactly what that is in just a moment. But um, really just your, your spiritual journey. It's, it's, it's The book is kind of... Of half a, a, a lesson in American intervention in, in sort of the second half of the 20th century and half uh, the, the journey of John Perkins. And you sort of, I think, finding your place in the world, doing a lot of soul searching. And that, that really does come across in the book. So I just, I just want to com commend you on your voice. I know you published it first uh, about you know 13 years ago, but uh, the second version, The New Confessions, is the, is the one that I recently read. And that it really did capture me. So I just want to you know congratulate you on that book because I think you really do have a, a way to convey your inner thoughts about what, in many ways, were some some pretty terrible things that you were involved with, but I, I think you really do go through a journey, and, and that really does come across to the reader. Thank you, Mark. And yeah, I, I, to, for the benefit of your listeners, uh, you know, if they're considering buying one, one one of the books or the other, buy buy the new Confessions of an Economic Hitman because it has most most everything that the old one has, plus 
as you can see, it's been updated. It's got 15 new chapters that talk about what we need to do to change things. And incidentally, the meow, any good economic hitman wouldn't have to roar. You go in with a meow, but but everybody knows that the roar is right behind it if it has to come. Right. You're that nice, friendly kiddly, kitty just wandering in there with uh, some offers of treats and snacks and uh, hoping to win them over. Meanwhile, there's kind of that gigantic lion just standing there in the background saying, well, if this nice kitty doesn't work, you know, we have a backup plan. Exactly. Exactly. So so we'll dig a little bit more into just exactly what is an economic hitman, how you got yourself involved in that that whole world in just a minute. But uh, the first thing I was kind of curious about is because you've been all over the world, as you detail in your book, you've been all throughout Asia, South America, the Middle East. Uh, I'm curious if there's any you know particular country, any place that you have the fondest mem- memories of. Is there is there one place that you just get you know chills up your spine, or a place that gives you that warm fuzzy feeling when you when you think back on it? Well, you know. I- I was a Peace Corps volunteer before I was an economic hitman. I was in Ecuador, and there's a, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of studies that have been done that show that if Peace Corps volunteers make it through the first year or so, they end up falling in love with the country that they're in, and that becomes their favorite forever. So actually, yes, Ecuador, I have a very soft place in my heart for Ecuador. I go back every year. And I just came from Colombia, and I'm headed for Costa Rica and Guatemala in a couple of days. Latin America in general, I, I really love, but I was also just recently in Russia and Kazakhstan and Spain. And it, God, you know, it's a great world. There's so many wonderful places. There's so much diversity. Yeah. And being an economic hitman, the, the career that you were in for some time, that will certainly take you places. I think it's safe to say. That's absolutely true. So why don't we uh, get get first involved with how exactly you became an economic hitman? Obviously, you, know, you started off in the Peace Corps, and uh, I don't think at any point in your mind here you were thinking, hmm, how can I help uh, maybe rape and pillage the resources of this country? I don't think that was your plan. It just seems to be sort of what happened to you. So why don't you detail how you first got into this field and how you got into uh, this area of economics where you're essentially sent in by large corporations to project out these very fancy models uh, and basically sell governments on the idea of these corporations coming in and, and putting them into debt. And, you know, you can sort of take it from there. But that, that's the, the general gist. Well, that's right, Mark. So it goes back to when I was in business school and, and just about to graduate. And the draft was was uh, was after me, uh, basically. And I didn't believe in the war in Vietnam. Um, so and I also didn't want to go to Canada or go to prison. I was glad to serve my country in different ways. So the Peace Corps offered another opportunity. But before I decided on the Peace Corps, um, my my ex-wife, at the, my wife at the time, her father was very high up in the Department of the Navy. His best friend was very high up in the National Security Agency, the NSA, the infamous NSA. And he suggested that I could go into work for the NSA, and that could be draft deferrable. So I went through a series of tests, including all-day lie detector tests, a very, very comprehensive tests, and he offered me a job, uh, basically, in the NSA. But then this Peace Corps opportunity came along. I'd always had dreams of going to the Amazon, of hanging out with indigenous people, and that opportunity came up, and I I checked back with, with him, the friend of my wife's father, and uh, he said, by all means, do it. He said, you'll learn another language. You'll learn great survival techniques. When you come out, uh, you'll be much better suited to what we have in mind for you to do. So I went ahead and did it. And I spent three years, almost three years, in Ecuador, in the Amazon rainforest, uh, a good share of it, and then also in the Andes with indigenous people. And while I was still there, 
uh, a senior vice president from the company I ended up working for came down and recruited me. I didn't know at the time, but later found out that he was uh, in the uh, Army Intelligence Reserve, Army Reserve Intelligence Unit, and was a liaison with the NSA, the CIA, and others. So he had my files. This was all sort of a prearranged thing. It seemed sort of accidental at the time, but uh, it, it wasn't. It was, it was not a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, it seems right out of out of a spy movie or something like that. I mean, it seems like you were sort of, I guess, somehow profiled early on when you went to go look into getting a deferment from Vietnam by working for the NSA. And then I guess, you know, they, I guess, suggested that you go to the Peace Corps. But it seems like this whole time that you're in the Peace Corps, they must have been, I don't know, I guess, sort of keeping an eye on you or, or had you on their radar because, you know, this guy just comes and swoops in and just, just brings you right into this corporate world uh, straight from the Peace Corps which doesn't doesn't sound like a normal career path. <laughs> well, actually, he, he came down just about a year before I got out of the Peace Corps, made contact with me, asked me if I'd be interested in writing reports for him, uh, sending him letters. In those days, we used letters. There was no email. Uh, and uh, I had a typewriter, and, and he, he asked me to send him written reports on various economic conditions in the country and the relationship between the indigenous people and the communist movements at that time. This was in 1960. Eight sixty-nine. There was nineteen seventy. Basically, he came in late sixty-nine, I think. Um, and you know, the communism was a we we felt was a threat, and so I did. I, I sent him these. I loved writing, and I'd been trained as an economist, so I sent him these reports. So by the time I was ready to leave, I had already established a relationship with him. He knew I could write reports. He knew I understood economics. He knew I could dig out information pretty well. So he'd been testing me in a way during that period of time. What do you think it was that the the NSA saw in you or whoever it was that was, I guess, behind the scenes sort of keeping an eye on you? What do you think that they saw in you that told them, all right, this is the kind of guy that we may be able to use. This is the kind of guy that can produce the sort of reports or perhaps be persuasive uh, in a way that will be useful to us. Well, you know, Mark, it's very interesting that uh, when I, I had gone to Middlebury College and uh, I had left in the middle of my sophomore year. The night before I left, I'd, I'd quit. Uh, I'd got, gotten in a barroom fight, and a good friend of mine was Iranian, and he'd pulled a knife on the guy that knocked me against the wall and drew blood, and we ran away. And the next morning, I was contacted by the campus police. I didn't think that they knew that they knew who I was or anything, but I was surprised. They dragged me into the office. Uh, he, his name in the book, I used it, I used the name Fahad for him. Uh, as I'm sitting there waiting to go into the be interrogated by the campus police, he comes out of the office. They don't let us talk to each other. They pull me in and question me, and I denied everything. I, I denied that he'd I'd seen him pull the knife. I, I lied bull-facedly in front of the cops. And, you know, I thought that, uh, and, and that came up in my lie detector test, I thought that would probably go against me, bad record and so forth. But in fact, they liked that. Not only did they like the fact that I could lie to police, but they also uh, liked the fact that Fahad's father was very high up in the Iranian uh, military. He was a general in the, in the Iranian Air Force, very close to the Shah of Iran. And in the end, Fahad, many, many years later, uh, got me out just before the bombs went off uh, and, and uh, the, the Ayatollahs took over. He got me out. So <clears throat> this was all 
when I'm going through these lie detector tests, I'm thinking, well, damn, I'm admitting I lied to the police. I got this knife fight and so on and so forth. I'm thinking that's all going to go against me. In fact, it, it, it all worked in my favor. And there were several other things kind of like that. Because going into this, you have the mindset that obviously the government is looking to, uh, you know, recruit upstanding citizens. They're looking to recruit really honest, straightforward folks. And uh, maybe a lot of this you only realize, you know, in retrospect many years later, but it turns out that those aren't really the qualities they were looking for. Perhaps something that, that turned them on to you was the idea that you could lie about something like that and, and pretty much, you know, lie without any reservation, without any hesitation. That's, the, I guess, the kind of quality that they really were looking for and for the, for the job they had in mind here. Yeah, a lot of police officers um, under pressure. And, um, you know, I mean, besides that, I had other qualities. I mean, I, I had graduated with a degree in business. Uh, so I had uh, some of the academic qualifications necessary. I had, you know, I'd been a very good athlete. And, and, and you know, I mean, I, had, I, had, I did have a few other things going for me. But, but one of them definitely was that that I was, you know, uh, that I, you know, I, I'd done done a couple of things that I thought would be against me, and they liked them. So, is there kind of a standard profile that is sought after for someone who's meant to be sort sort of an EHM, an economic hitman, EHM, as you refer to it often in the book? Is there just a, a I guess a, a number of boxes that they're looking for to check? Obviously, someone who can run numbers, crunch numbers, make numbers look good, and then also these qualities of persuasion, which you know include up to possibly just flat out lying about the the mission and the intent of the the, the organization. Well, yes, and I don't know whether there's any standard profile. I think it depends on a lot of different factors, but certainly they wanted someone who could survive in another uh, culture uh, under fairly what most Americans might think of as difficult conditions, someone who could learn other languages. And, uh, you know, in the Peace Corps, I'd, you know, I'd learned Spanish and so forth. Uh, so I don't know that there's a standard profile. I have no idea. But, uh, you know, I, I certainly know that those were things that worked to my advantage. The fact that I could, uh, you know, I could sleep in the jungle and <laughs> I could get along. I could survive. Let's dig a little bit more into exactly what an economic hitman is. And I think more so when you first realized that is what you were. I mean, because at first you really, I, I think you really came across as you were just working in a legitimate business environment, trying to show how your your companies can benefit these nations. Uh, but obviously over time, it, it really started to dawn on you that there was a little more sort of an insidious nature to what you're doing. So why don't you explain exactly kind of how that played out and what exactly your role was? Well, yeah, my real title was economist, and fairly quickly I became chief economist. I ended up having about 50 people working for me uh, in this major international consulting firm, Charles T. Main, uh, which incidentally doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was bought out by another company, Parson. I, I, so my job was to and my staff to get my staff to identify countries with resources our corporations covet, like oil. And then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations, knowing full well that the money would never go to the country. It would instead go to our own corporations, big engineering companies, the, the Stone and Websters, the Bechtels, the Halliburtons, the General Electrics, and the, and the big pr pr providers of heavy equipment, too, to build infrastructure projects in those countries. Things like power plants and industrial parks and highways that would benefit, first of all, our corporations that made huge profits off these 
projects. And second of all, a few wealthy families in these countries, the ones who own the industries and the commercial establishments and the banks, but the majority of the people would suffer because money would be diverted from education, healthcare, and other social services to pay the interest on the loans. And in the end, the loans could not be bought down. The principal was never bought down. So we'd go back and say, since you can't uh, pay off your loan, uh, sell your resource real cheap, cheap, cheap to our corporations without any environmental or social regulations, or allow us to build a military base on your soil, or vote with us against Cuba or some, some, some country uh, on the next United Nations vote. We really were creating this empire uh, through debt and through collaboration with few wealthy individuals in these various countries. And, I, you know, that's actually what we're taught in business school is the right way to help poor countries is you invest a lot of money in infrastructure. And statistically, using econometric models, you can show that that's, in fact, the case. When you invest in these projects, gross domestic product goes up. But what the statistics don't tell you and what eventually I discovered uh, was that those statistics really only reflect a few wealthy families in those countries. The st statistics are very skewed. You know, we, we know today that eight individuals have as much wealth as half the world's population. Well, if those eight individuals are doing very well and half the world's population is not doing so well, it still looks from a macro standpoint and an econometric model that the world's doing very well because the people with the money are doing well. And, and, and at first, you know, I was not aware of that. But over time, I began to see how this was really a, a very uh, uh, insidious plan, one that was going against the majority of people in the world in order to help a few wealthy. When did those cracks start start to break a little bit for you that you start to you know see through the wall and see some of that insidious nature of what you were doing? Were there certain conversations you had? I know you met a lot of really interesting people, some of whom were, were very prominent politicians in various countries along the way that, that really influenced you. But you know, is there any one moment that stands out where you really had, had a revelation, where you just had a light bulb go off that said, what I'm doing is actually wrong. It's not just a little insidious. It's not just a little shady. This is actually against my morals. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I spoke Spanish, and so I didn't have to have translators always translating for me, and that and translators can often work for the you know the the, the wealthy people, um, and and you know the fact that I'd been in the Peace Corps uh, helped me see this because I'd lived with the people who were being screwed in this process, and then I had this relationship with one of my clients, the head of state of Panama, Omar Torrijos who was extremely adamant about this. He really understood the system, and he, and he made it very clear to me. At first, I resisted it, but eventually I began to really understand that what he was saying was true, and it was one of the reasons the CIA and NSA were so down on him, and eventually he was assassinated. Uh, but before that, while I was with him, he really laid it out for me. It was very hard to ignore it at that point. And I have to tell you, Mark, it, once I began to see what was wrong with the system, I didn't really want to see what was wrong with the system. I was making a lot of money. I was traveling first class. I was staying in the best hotels and so on and so forth. I didn't really want to see the truth. And I think that tells us a lot about position a lot of people are in these days. It's, it's easier not to see the truth. It's more convenient. But it became increasingly difficult <laughs> for me not to. And then I also began to realize that despite the fact I had all the trappings of success – money, flying first class, et cetera, 
I was living on booze and Valium. I was not happy. I would not. I, 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 I finally hit me over the head that I, I really wasn't enjoying all these trappings. It wasn't wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. One focus, obviously, this is a libertarian podcast. We have an entire day of the week that we focus on the war on drugs and, and the criminal justice system. And you know, one thing I, I've learned through through that um, through a book called Chasing the Screen by uh, Johan Hari, um, you know that most people that are have some kind of addiction, whether it's alcohol or Valium, it's because they're trying to suppress something, something, you know, either a depression or just something they're not comfortable with in their real life. And that kind of so- sounds like what was happening with you. You're, if you just look at the surface level, just like with the uh, the GDP numbers and the econ- econometric models you'd put, put out, you can put out, uh, you know, something on the surface that looks great if you just look at the surface numbers. You know, if you just met John Perkins, uh, you know, flying first class and staying in nice hotels, you might think this guy's got it made. Everything's wonderful. Meanwhile, you're, you know, you're hooked on Valium. I'm hooked on booze, and that's really because maybe at the time you didn't realize even why, but clearly it was due to the nature of what you were doing and, you know, due to, I guess, uh, dare I say, the, the dark nature of what you were doing. Yeah, 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 that's absolutely true. Yeah, I, you know, and, and I, I look at a lot of people these days, people that seem to be very, very successful, and if you look beneath the surface of the story behind the story, you can often see that these people are just driven and they're not, they're, they've got miserable lives. And that was certainly my case. I, I was driven and I grew up relatively poor in New Hampshire. My father was a school teacher in a boys' private school. I was surrounded by very, very wealthy kids. And yet my dad didn't get paid hardly anything. We, we had, you know, room and board, but that was, he didn't get much money. I didn't have a chance to go to any restaurants or anything. So once I get into this job, I'm doing the kind of thing that I'd always had you know, visions of doing, my fantasies of doing. And it was, it was, uh, I just didn't, I didn't want to admit to, to the truth that A, that what I was doing was wrong and B, it was, I was not happy. Right. Well, th- those are both, I, I think, very difficult truths to, uh, to accept for anybody in, in a situation like that. Obviously, most people weren't necessarily in the, in the exact kind of situation you are in, but uh, I want to dig a little bit further into the connection between uh, to what extent did the United States government like directly influence, say, the countries that were chosen? Because on one hand, you're working for this corporation at, at one point in Maine and then other ones later down the road. But it seems like not only are the countries that you would be sent to would obviously be very politically motivated. You played a big hand in the U.S.'s current relationship with, with Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, clearly there was a political motive behind that more so than than simply the, the you know the motives of the corporation you're working for. To what extent is the government like directly influencing the decisions of these businesses to uh, to to send economic hitmen to certain countries, or is it? Kind of the other way. Is it more the corporations that are that are influencing this? Which side is is, is having more of the pull here? You know, I, that, that that's a very interesting question, and it's it, it shows a, the power of the system because in my day, which was in the seventies, uh, the I think the government was pretty much driving things. Um, and you mentioned Saudi Arabia. Well, that was a contract we had with the U.S. Treasury Department uh, to go into Saudi Arabia and do what we did in Saudi Arabia. So. I wasn't paid directly by the government, but my com- company was, and my you know my salary came out of that. We, we were we were paid a huge amount of money by the U.S. Treasury Department to basically um, hit Saudi Arabia, and that was true in a lot of these 
these countries where where it was very well understood that what we were doing was putting these countries in a position where they would be indebted to the U.S. government or the World Bank or the IMF, both of which were very much controlled by the U.S. government. And many of our contracts were with USAID, Agency for International Development, or U.S. Treasury or, or other government organizations or the World Bank. I think today, increasingly, the big corporations are driving everything. So today, every major corporation has their version of economic hitmen, whether it's it's Monsanto or Nike or Chevron or you, you name it, Walmart. All the big internationals have their version of economic hitmen that are out there just trying to reap benefits for that company. In my day, it was about reaping benefits primarily for the U.S. and U.S. corporations. And sometimes we didn't care which corporations got the contracts as long as they were U.S. corporations. Uh, I think those kind of people are still there. And in addition, uh, the corporations have all of their people. And I think it's fair to say, Mark, uh, that today uh, the world economy is very much driven by big corporations. The the Chinese economic miracle would not have happened if it weren't for global corporations behind all of it. Yes, the Chinese had certain policies and a labor force and so forth, but the it was the big it's the big corporations that have taken all of their products uh, international. Yeah, and you, you do seem to think, you know, you talk about in your book how the, the root problem is really that these corporations essentially control governments. And many libertarians would argue that the real problem is, is the governments having the power that they do in the first place. It may just be a, a chicken and egg thing there because, like you said, at some point the lines become so blurry, it's hard to even tell where the corporations begin and where the government ends. Well, the corporations have infiltrated the government. Uh, you know, you know, we see that the Secretary of State today is a former CEO of a big uh, oil company, and that's not unusual at all. I mean, when the, under the Bushes, we had uh, uh, two presidents who were very, very directly involved in the oil company. Under uh, under Obama, we had, uh, you know, we had many people from Wall Street uh, driving his administration, and from big pharma and big oil, and and we and certainly under Trump, we're seeing that very o- overt that the corporations really uh, have int- infiltrated government. You know, the, the, the definition, the, the, the simplest definition of, of capitalism is a, a system where the means of production and commerce are owned by private individuals, not by the government. And in a way today, I think we have almost the opposite of that. We have a situation where not only are, are, are the corporations, are the means of production not owned by the government, but those who own the means of production, the private citizens, also control government to a certain degree, to, to a very large degree. We see that over and over. So you're right. There's a, there's a huge mingling there uh, of these things. Hey, guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. 
Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty, rock and roll. I wanted to ask you, this is something you t- you've mentioned both in your book and in other interviews I've heard with you. You've been critical of, of uh, Milton Friedman's kind of take on corporations. Uh, I believe he, he basically said, you know, that the only one social responsibility of businesses is to use its resources and, and engage in activities to increase its profits as long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. I, I think we're good on that first sentence of Milton Friedman's, the, the first half a sentence. It's that latter half where I think that uh, that's that's the realm that you were in, where uh, there was nothing but deception and fraud, both from the United States government and um, and from all the corporations you're involved with. I guess the question is, how, how do we really, how do we separate these two things? How do we attack this problem? You know, if these corporations are so big and have so much power, and meanwhile, the governments have that same power and are bought by the corporations, the question remains, how do we actually tackle these things? And you actually do lay out a lot of the solutions in your book. And I think that uh, Libertarians, obviously, you're not, you're not necessarily a libertarian by, by any means, and a lot of people might disagree with you on a lot of your individual political points, but I think if people actually read your solutions, they'll find that every solution you put forward in your book is actually a voluntary solution. It's really just saying, you people, if you believe in these things, if you have these ideas, if you have these beliefs about how the world should be, about how, you know, how we should treat the environment, it's up to you. It's up to you to take action and up to you to, to be the change that you want to see in the world. Yeah, it is. We, we the people who have to do this. Um, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends and, and, and who are high up in corporations. I do a lot of lecturing at big corporate conventions, which is interesting. You know, I, I was recently in St. Petersburg, Russia at the St. Petersburg International Economic uh, Forum, where I shared a stage with, with uh, Fortune 500 people and Nobel winners and Putin uh, and uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, Guterres. And I hang out with some of these corporate executives, and one of the things I hear from them often is how frustrated they are that they, you know, while they have, while they do have power within their industries, uh, they feel powerless to really change the system. They'll tell me things like, you know, I would like to have our corporation pay our workers in Indonesia a higher salary, but I know that that's going to cut into our profits. And if our profits go down, my top shareholders will will fire me because all they want is short-term profits, you know, the old Milton Friedman thing. And they get very frustrated by that. So they'll tell me, you know, it's it, it's it's you, it's your it's your listeners, it's it's Mark, it's your listeners, it's people who who need to get out there and say to these corporations, send emails, send texts, send tweets, send. Facebook postings and so on and so forth, use your social networking service to say, hey, we love your products, but you have to do so-and-so better. You have to pay your workers a better wage or you have to uh, clean up the environment that you're ruining or whatever. But, you know, whatever it is that we want to see them do more of to push that on them because it really is up to us. Uh, It's up to us to change the story so that the story is not one about creating an economic system that we've been creating, which I call a death economy, which is an economic system that's basically consuming itself into extinction. 
It's ruining the very resources upon which it's based. It's, it's, it's exhausting them. We need to create an economic system that I refer to as a life economy that's, that's about cleaning up pollution. It's about uh, regenerating destroyed environments. It's about new technologies that recycle, that use more of the sun and the wind and the air, you know, the, the, old, the Tesla effect and so forth. We really are at a cusp right now where I think it's an extremely exciting time where we can move into a new era, and this doesn't going to require huge sacrifices, as people always think. Well, why are we going to have to live in caves? No, no. We just move into a new type of economic system that's really based on uh, creating a, an, an economy that is itself a renewable resource. It's in the process of happening. We need to make it happen more, and it is up to each of us as individuals to make it happen. It isn't up to government to make it happen. And the corporations, I think, most of them want it to happen. But they don't know how to make it happen and maintain their jobs, basically, at the highest levels. Sure. And that's certainly a part of what you're doing right now in the private sector with with your project Dream Change and trying to actually influence corporations uh, in some way. And I'll, I'll let you discuss that a little bit more uh, in just a minute. But there's one thing I did want to circle back to before we wrap up, and that's um, how you kind of came to that decision, not only to leave your life as an economic hitman, because you do detail that that process over the years. It certainly wasn't an overnight decision when you, when you realized what you were doing was wrong, but more so to speak out and actually to write the book Confessions of an Economic Hitman, later updated to new confessions of an economic hitman. How did you actually decide to make that decision? And maybe you can touch on how the events of 9-11 tied into that, because that was one thing that really was fascinating to me that I, I don't think I ever really fully made the connection before, even though it makes perfect sense. But uh, on 9-11, it, it wasn't the Statue of Liberty that was attacked. It wasn't our, our, our very well-known symbols of freedom that were attacked. It was the economic center. It was the economic symbols. And I, maybe just reading your book might be the first time I fully made that connection when like, of course, of course, there's a reason it was the economic symbols that they attacked because we're waging economic warfare all through the world. Uh, so maybe you can just tie in how that event related to your, I guess, maybe having the bravery or the gusto, whatever you want to call it, to go ahead and get your book out, get confessions of an, of an economic hitman out there to the world. Well, yeah, I started writing a book uh, right after I, I quit uh, being an economic hitman. And, and that wasn't an easy thing to quit. I, I detail in the book about the struggles I went through to get out of from under that business. And then I started writing a book, uh, an expose, basically. And I contacted other people that had jobs like mine and the jackals. Those are the people who, when we economic hitmen fail, will go in and either assassinate uh, government leaders or overthrow them in coups. And I talk in my book about how two of my... Uh, clients, Jaime Roldos of Ecuador, president of Ecuador, and Omar Torrijos of Panama were both taken out uh, because they didn't play the game. In any case, I start writing this book, and I contacted other people that had been in the business, and I immediately got anonymous phone calls threatening my life and that of my infant daughter. She was an infant at the time. And then I got taken out to dinner by the president of Stone & Webster, a, a big uh, engineering consulting firm that had been a, a competitor of, of my companies. And he said, you know, you've got a great resume. You were chief economist at our competitor, and we'd like to use your resume and proposals. You won't have to do much work for us. Just let us use your resume, and I'm prepared to write you a check uh, consultant's retainer for half a million dollars. Just don't write that book. Wow. So my life's being threatened, my daughter's life's being threatened, and I'm being offered a substantial amount of money not to write a book. It's really a bribe, but it was totally legal. What would you do? <laughs> you know, I took the money, 
And I, I've invested it in going back to the place where I've been a Peace Corps volunteer. I write in the book about how uh, my life was uh, saved by a healer, an indigenous healer in the Amazon at one time when I literally was dying. And I went back to these people. And I said, you know, you saved my life years ago. I want to now help you save your rainforest. And they said, well, that's great. But if, if you do, then, uh, you know, you've got to change the paradigm of your people, the dream, as they would call it. Uh, the economic system. I came back and I founded Dream Change, this nonprofit organization, and later co-founded the Pachamama Alliance. We've been doing a lot of work in that regard. And I also wrote five books, Shape-Shifting the World as Your Dream at Psychonavigation, on the subject of these indigenous people. Stoner Webster was fine with me doing that while I was still on retainer to them. And then I was in the Amazon with a group of people helping them learn about uh, from the from the indigenous people on 9-11. I, when I came home, I flew up to ground zero, and as I stood there in that, watching that smoldering pit, I knew I had to come clean on what, on what I'd done on this book. And I decided at that time that I wouldn't tell a soul I was writing it. I would not write an expose. I would write a personal confession, just a, my own story. I'd write the whole book. And then once I got a, the whole thing, the manuscript, in the hands of a very good New York literary agent, he got out to publishers, I figured it would be my insurance policy. And uh, that's really what, what drove me to, to do that. Was part of it seeing, just actually seeing the physical destruction in person, seeing the empty void where there used to be these giant towers, and then realizing that was the blowback. That was blowback from part of what you had been out there doing for the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'd been in those towers, you know, I'd, I'd eaten at the restaurant at the top, I'd been to offices in those towers, so, you know, there but there but for the grace of God went I, you know, in that building. So yeah, it, it, was, it was an extremely powerful experience uh, for me. And, and, you know, it was so close after the thing actually happened that you could smell the smoke and I could swear I could smell burning bodies. I don't know whether that was my imagination or what, but it was it was a it was it made a huge impression on me. Yeah, John, and like I said, and, and like you, you touched on there, you are uh, certainly doing your part to uh, not only redeem yourself. I, I think from uh, you know a lot of the things that you can look back on now and, and see them as immoral and see that you in in many ways might have been shaping the world in a negative way, and and you're really trying to do the opposite. Not only with uh, sort of the catharsis of writing these books, of writing uh, confessions and new confessions of an economic hitman. And we'll link to that book in the show notes. Definitely, definitely, definitely get the new confessions of an economic hitman because it is just chock full. I think you said something like 15 extra chapters. There, there's so much in there, uh, especially a lot of your takes on newer events that have occurred since you wrote the first book. I found a lot of that really fascinating. But uh, like I said, you're out there actually trying to influence things um, in the real world. You're trying to influence the way corporations act and, and the way you know people sort of go through their own spiritual journeys, both with dream change, uh, with the Love Summit. So why don't you delve a little bit more into all these other projects you've got going out there. How are you, John Perkins, no longer an economic hitman? How are you trying to positively influence and change the world? Well, Mark, I think, yeah, well, f first of all, I would suggest to people go to my website, johnperkins.org, and actually put your email address in the little box and sign up for the newsletter. There's one coming out in a couple of days, uh, which, which I, I think your listeners will find very, very, very interesting that deals with some of the wars that are going on today. And I think we're at an amazing time right now. I think we're at a time where people across the planet are waking up. I, th I think we're at the greatest revolution in history, perhaps, a, a consciousness revolution where people are, are waking up. And everywhere I go, and I travel a lot, 
I see that people are understanding that human beings have to have a new relationship with each other and with the planet, uh, that we're on a slippery slope. This death economic system we've had has brought us great things. It's brought us amazing technology. The fact you and I are having this conversation, for example, incredible incredible healthcare, medicines and art and mute it's all sorts of things but we know that's got out of balance now and the and the glaciers are melting and and you know eight individuals have as much wealth as half the world's population it's gone too far and i think people everywhere are getting that and and that we're at a phenomenal time where it's up to each each of us as individuals to look within ourselves and see what it is we can do uh, to turn this around. And the opportunities are magnificent. Uh, we just need to make them happen. And, you know, I'm so encouraged by young people these days. Uh, I, I see a, a huge change just in the past 12, 13 years since the first Confessions of an Economic Hitman came out. I've seen huge changes in uh, amongst students, amongst young people, uh, in business and and in so many other walks of life, where people are really understanding that we live on a very fragile space station, the Earth, and there aren't any shuttles. You can't. We can't get off. And so, well, maybe a few of us will <laughs> go to Mars or the Moon, but certainly most of us won't. And so we need to. We, and yet we've got this space station headed toward disaster. We need to renavigate it. We need to uh, reconfigure its course. And people are waking up to that, and it's exciting. And I think there's a role in it for all of us. And this is a role for each individual to decide for himself or herself uh, what direction to go in. Yeah, so be sure to check out johnperkins.org. I believe you also have dreamchange.org for that. If there's anything else you want to mention, uh, feel free to plug away now. I think that would be perfect. I'd love to have people put their, you know, their email address in that little box, johnperkins.org, and uh, the newsletter comes out about once a month. It's fairly short. I'm not going to overwhelm people with information, but I think they'll find it interesting. I think your listeners particularly will find it interesting. I think, you know, there's a lot of libertarians that really, really like my work. I think so as well. I mean, I think one of the biggest, I guess, uh, complaints, we have a lot of complaints, you know, uh, but one of the biggest complaints libertarians have is crony capitalism, uh, when governments and corporations get in bed together. And that is really uh, what, what your book and what all of your work here is about. And uh, not only you're in pointing out that problem and pointing out uh, really the, the worst effects of that problem with the death economy, as, as you said describe it in your book, but also trying to be a solution and, and move ourselves away from that, not by saying tear everything down. I mean, if you just say tear everything down, you, you get Hugo Chavez, you get, you know, the government just taking command and control of everything. And and that's not good either. Uh, you really are, are, are taking, I think, a, po- a positive approach, a positive spin on things. And really your message from, from everything I gather from you is that your message is that the power is within, within us, within the individuals, and we are the ones that have to create this change. That is, that's where it's going to come from. It's not going to be come from from a CEO. It's not going to come from a president or a politician. It's going to come from us. And uh, John, I really do appreciate your time today. And I really appreciate you out there uh, really, you know, speaking so honestly about uh, your life, about your journey. I mean, I think, like I said before the interview, I mean, I think that's that's what really comes through to me is that it's not just a lesson in what an economic hitman is. Uh, your book is really a lesson in, uh, in a, a journey through someone's soul, a journey through someone realizing that their life and, and what they've made it out to be on the surface isn't 
isn't really as wonderful as it is when it's when it's you know when there's evil results when there's an insidious nature to it you can't run from that you can never run from that it's gonna either eat at you in the form of addiction or depression or or you know it's it's, it's gonna end in a bad way one way or the other and you found a way to turn that all of that experience and all of the the misdeeds that you did into a positive and, and, and try to influence the world so I just want to commend you for that and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to the Lions of Liberty listeners today. Thank you, Mark, very much for having me on your program. And also just thank you for all you're doing to get this message out there. It's, it's extremely important to, you know, this, uh, the, the mainstream media is uh, what we call the mainstream media isn't getting the message out there. I like to think of you and others like you as being the true mainstream media. And I deeply, deeply appreciate what you're doing. Please keep it up. I'm actually curious that now that you mentioned it, has the mainstream media given you much attention, much attention at all? I don't think I've seen any really mainstream interviews with you. I might've just missed them, but I mean, have they just basically ignored you and acted? I know you were on the New York times bestseller list, but you know, they can't avoid the numbers when you're selling books, but how much attention has the mainstream paid to your work? Not much. Uh, there have been a few few programs on MSNBC. Because it seems like a really big story. You know, if the, if, the, if the media was really about getting at the truth, this is one of the biggest stories out there. You know, it's interesting that I was, my book was on the New York Times bestseller list for almost a year and a half. And it's perhaps the only book that's been on that long that was never reviewed by the New York Times book review section, they did ultimately do a feature story on the phenomena of the book, which was uh, top of the fold, half of the page in the Sunday section of the the New York Times financial dis- uh, paper, where they they vetted it and you know they, they tried to find stuff wrong that I where I lied and stuff, but they they couldn't, <laughs> and they and they came out and I have to hand it to them, they came out and 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 talked about that and admitted it. And it was it was a, it was a it was a pretty major article, but that was like a, a year and a half after the book came out. But still, and no it, review. <laughs> it never was reviewed. It never was reviewed as a book. It was more a story of the the story behind the story of the book, which is pretty funny, interesting. Yeah, they want to ignore me. <laughs> well, we're not going to let them. And, and like you said, that's the great thing about the world we are. One of the positive effects of the world we live in is how easy it is for us to communicate with, e- with each other. Uh, yes. We don't have to go through Fox News. We don't have to hope that Clear Channel puts us on, on the radio. We can exactly. do it all ourselves and reach people ourselves. And that's exactly what uh, you and I are both doing in our own ways. So, John, once again, thank you so much for joining me today. Keep up the great work and keep on roaring. My pleasure, Mark. And you keep up your great work, too. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you, John. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John Perkins, the author of New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. That's the one you got to get. That's the one that I'm going to be linking to over at the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash 329. Be sure to go over there and click that puppy. And if you're even mildly fascinated by what you heard today from John Perkins and his firsthand account of being an economic hitman, you have got to read this book because we only scratched the surface of the scratch on the surface. I mean, there is just so much depth to this book and he really takes you through so many foreign policy events, including more modern stuff like goings on in Venezuela and Honduras. There's really a lot of meat to this book. It's really, I would, I would call it a must read for people, especially not only for libertarians, for, but for people that are just really interested in foreign policy, because you really do learn a lot about the economic aspects of foreign policy. Now for, for the, uh, the military aspects of foreign policy, I will send everyone to Scott Horton, who I plan to get on again in the coming months here. But for this economic stuff, you really got to go to John Perkins because he was there on the inside and his account is truly 
fascinating. So be sure to check that out. Now, I also want to give you guys an update on the Lions of Liberty Pride. Even since our New Year's Day show, we have gotten even more donations from our amazing listeners and our amazing supporters out there. We are now up to over $700 per month from fans of this show. Again, you can join the Lions of Liberty Pride. Join our family here by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. That's where you'll find all the information you need to sign up. And you get so much bonus content, including... A couple shows that are coming at you in the next week or so, we're going to be doing another episode of our Conspiracy Corner. That's basically a libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor roundtable style show, only we're talking conspiracies. And then we've also got another episode of the League of Liberty coming at you. That's when I get together with some guys you heard about earlier in the show. My man Roger Paxton of the Lava Flow podcast, Johnny Rocket Adams of the Johnny Rocket Launchpad, and Chris Spangle of the... We are Libertarians podcast. We all get together to form this super team known as the League of Liberty. And we also shoot the shit for about an hour or so. We usually don't go in there with too much of an agenda, but we do have a really good time and people seem to really be enjoying it. Those shows are only available to people who join the Lions of Liberty Pride at $5 or more per month. So again, go ahead and check that out at lionsofliberty.com slash support. We are pushing hard to reach the 1000 dollar a month goal hopefully by next month that is what i want to do i want to hit that goal by february there's a reason for it it's because that goal is where we go to liberty events across the country and start recording some podcasts from there some live on the scene type stuff maybe even some live streaming shows it's all going to depend how much money and how much support we get from you guys but hopefully we can lock it in by next month because uh, my man roger paxson wants to get us all out to pork fest And he wants us to commit soon, and hopefully we can make that commitment. We can make it to him if you guys make the commitment to us. So if you go over and pledge $5 a month, $10 a month, $25 a month, we have all sorts of amazing rewards and perks at all these various levels. And you can help send us to Pork Fest, hopefully to Freedom Fest, to the Libertarian Party's National Convention, where we can bring you a lot more coverage of the Liberty world out there from right on the ground. So we're very excited about the way things are progressing. Thank you so much to all our new members of the Lions of Liberty Pride. And while you've got your wallets out, while you've got your credit cards out, why don't you go ahead and check out the DonorC app. If you guys don't have this app already, I interviewed Gret Glyer, the founder of DonorC last year, and now a listener of this program, a member of the Pride, Clint Rankin, has put together a group called Walk the Walk, where every week, every month, he is promoting different projects to the Liberty community at large, trying to rally us to support some great charitable projects out there to really show the world that we don't only talk the talk about how things could work, how people could get help in a free society, we walk that walk. So be sure to follow the group Walk the Walk. There's also a website, walkthewalktofreedom.com. Check all of that stuff out so you can keep up to date on the projects that we are supporting each and every month. And be sure to continue to tune into this program by clicking that subscribe button. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher. You can hear us on TuneIn Radio. If you have an Amazon Echo, you can just shout at it, Amazon Echo or Alexa, whatever you call it. Play me the Lions of Liberty podcast on TuneIn, and she will hopefully comply. Just like I expect all of you to comply with my liberty commands, which are simply to tune in to Brian McWilliams this coming Wednesday for your weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, as well as this coming Friday to John Odermatt on his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. That's it. That's all I'm asking. Until next time, folks. Live long! And live free.